Welcome to this installment of One More Time, the University of Illinois Bands Program's very own Wind Band Podcast. My name is Louis Yaki, and I am this episode's host and story producer. This episode will focus on the topic of multi-instrumentalists, specifically woodwind doublers, brass players, jazz musicians, Souza and his upbringing as a multi-instrumentalist, and the ways that multi-instrumentalists can function in real-world contexts such as school bands, university settings, and musical theater pit orchestras. To explore this topic, we will be featuring a wide variety of guests, including Andrew Nichols, Dr. Matthew Sadowski, Dr. Gail Robertson, Scott Schwartz, and Ryan O'Connell. From the whole team at One More Time, thank you for supporting our podcast and the University of Illinois Bands program. To kick off this episode, we will be hearing from our very own Scott Schwartz, director of the Sousa Archives and Center for American Music here at the University of Illinois. He will be giving us some insight about who other than the March King himself, John Philip Sousa, and his musical upbringing as a multi-instrumentalist. So Scott, could you talk us through Sousa's early training, kind of give us a little roadmap of how he became who he is, starting from the very beginning? Well, in 1854, he was born. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's interesting you say that. Um, Sousa is the third of 10 children um, that um, were born to his parents. Um, his father was a musician. Um, his mother was not a musician, but had great appreciation for music. Um, Sousa's early music training um, begins essentially when he's six. John Esputa Sr., um, who was a great violinist, um, he had a music school in um, Washington, D.C., um, and was a good friend of the Sousa's, um, heard that, um, that the young John Philip Sousa um, had some musical talent um, and needed some guidance. So at age six, um, he um, took Sousa under his wing. And um, he didn't start him on playing the violin, but rather working on vocal leases, on solfege, basically. So could you read music and sing the pitches without having to play them on the piano? Um, now, well, John Esputa Sr. was a great violinist. Um, his voice was, how did Susan describe it? His voice was kind of like scratching fingernails across the blackboard every time he sang. Um, squawks and squeaks and so forth. And um, he was very demanding um, and a perfectionist. And um, every week the Sousa family would invite Mr. Esputa to home for dinner. And then John Philip would get his vocalese lesson. And at times those lessons were um, dynamic, if not a little explosive. Um, Sputa had a short temper. Um, and when Sousa did not sing the right pitches, you know, then he was taken to task um, in very forceful ways. Um, and so John Philip, really did not like getting 
these vocalese lessons um, with the sputa. And he would come up with creative ways to avoid it. Of course, it's kind of hard to avoid the lessons when the teacher comes to your home, is a friend of the family, and therefore, you know, you're kind of stuck. And, um, you know, there, there are many stories of how John Flip would try to get out of those lessons, of which we could talk about for hours. But um, essentially, um, by 1861, of course, he's six. This is 1860. Um, the Civil War is, is, is going on. So it's clearly, you know, his, his background sounds, um, you know, very clear, a battle. Okay. Um, 1861, um, he eventually uh, changes teachers from John Esputa Sr. to John Esputa Jr., who has a music conservatory in Washington, D.C. The conservatory was very close to his home. And for essentially four years between 1861 and 1865, um, uh, John Philip studied essentially um, voice, violin, piano, flute, cornet, baritone, trombone, and alto horn. So he got an incredible amount of instrumental training. He also got music theory, um, music harmony, in composition. So it was a full range of, of skills that he was developing as a young boy. Um, he um, was quite good at playing the violin and um, played first violin for Mr. Asputa's student orchestra which was periodically asked to give performances um, for the community. Um, and the story goes that during his third year of, of study, um, he was identified as going the solo performer for that concert um, that evening. And, um, you know, he, he acknowledged he would do it. Um, but during the afternoon, there was a pickup baseball game. And of course, baseball was um, John Phillips' favorite activity and a, a frequent excuse for not practicing or doing anything else. So he spent the afternoon playing baseball and came home late in the day and suddenly realized that he had to get dressed to do the concert. Now, he had his socks and his pants and so forth, but he did not have a clean shirt to wear. So he went to the Sputa's home and John Sputa's wife then put on one of John Sputa's shirts for John Philip to wear and, and pinned it up so it sort of fit him um, properly. And John then went to the performance to play. Needless to say, the pins came out, the shirt began to unravel, and as it unraveled, so did the musical performance until essentially it, it was a disaster, of which John Esputa was absolutely annoyed and chewed out Sousa for such a wretched performance. And for a while, John Philip was just disgusted with the whole idea of performing, although he did, um, by 1865, go back 
to finish up his fourth year of study with the conservatory. Now, at about um, age 10 or 11, right, his father plays trombone with the Marine Band, and John Philip was allowed to attend rehearsals of the Marine Band, and he was allowed to play the cymbals, the triangle, and the alto horn in the band. Um, now, this is quite striking. Uh, you've got essentially an 11-year-old who's playing with a, a, the president's own. Um, and part of it, I think, is just his drive for music. He, he acquired some um, unique qualities from his, his parents. His mother, um, who was German, um, was driven and worked hard. And she, her belief was that to get things done, you had to work at it and work at it hard. His father was far less driven by the need to work, but more driven by the need to grow new knowledge. And so he was always looking for new things to learn about. And those two qualities really begin to play into the young Suze's concept of being a musician. He thought, this is my life. Um, now, by age 13, um, he enlists, this would have been 1867, um, he enlists in an as an apprentice musician in the Marine Band, okay? And he continues to study harmony, composition, theory. And as a result, he's working with the musicians to continue the studies he had already started in um, the conservatory. For any interested band directors out there, our two-minute rehearsal technique is coming up next with Dr. Matthew Sadowski, currently the director of bands at the University of California at Berkeley and formerly a high school band director. So for this technique, I thought I'd talk about achieving order with scatter rehearsals. Most people have heard of scatter rehearsals. They're those in which the players sit elsewhere in the rehearsal room, no apparent order to their individual locations. But while many people have heard of this technique, not everyone is comfortable implementing it or they don't find it useful. I find it very useful, but it's not enough to simply say, okay, everybody, go move somewhere else. You need some rules, you need some order. So my rules are fairly simple. I tell everyone they have to move calmly and carefully. They must sit in a different row than they would normally sit in, and they cannot sit next to somebody who plays the same instrument. Uh, I like to give players a time limit, so I say, you have 30 seconds, ready, go. Off they go. I might help them find some seats. If you have younger students or a cramped space and you're worried about instruments being banged around, you can have half of them get up and move to the edges of the room, let the other half move around, and then let the first half filter in. And I... You know, you don't be too pedantic about it. If there's two flute players who end up next to each other in the tuba section, fine, move on. Uh, and one last note, consider your mobility challenge students. They might appreciate a heads up before class begins. Uh, percussionists can absolutely participate in this. You can move cymbals and snare drums around fairly easily. Um, and timpani, you can just leave them in a different part of the room for the entire rehearsal. Why not? 
so now that everybody's in a new place, it's time to put this apparent lack of organization to good use uh, with a few strategies. Uh, when students are in their new positions, I like to have half the band uh, play. I, 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 I count them off every other seat. And then the other students who are not playing can actually look at the parts that they otherwise wouldn't see and actually look at the sheet music and compare it to their own and then switch and vice versa. Another strategy is to isolate sections or families of instruments that would normally sit next to each other. So like if you're rehearsing a march, you can have the tubas and horns play the umpas, even though they're in all different parts of the room, they have to actually listen to each other in order to do that successfully. And it'll take a couple of times and it's good for their ears. Another strategy is to practice your sight reading skills in these in this setting. I find this work this works the best if you select repertoire that's well within the band's ability. So a grade three piece for a group that can play five or six level music, uh, it forces them to use their ears and it gives um, students an appreciation who play small instruments for the sound delay that is sort of inherent to a larger instrument and vice versa. And this is also good practice for uh, festivals. A lot of times the festival setup is very different than your homeroom. This is sort of an extreme version of preparation, but when the students walk into a festival room and a couple rows are different, if they've done this before, they're conditioned to where that's no big deal at all and it just doesn't affect them. Uh, and then a final strategy that I'll offer is to implement other rehearsal strategies while you're scattered. So have the band play without you conducting. You can conduct a silent rehearsal while everybody is scattered. That's where everybody is silent, including you. All the instruction is visual or, you know, aural through, you know, nonverbal sounds. Or you can do this during a warm-up. Do it during your long tones. Do it during your rhythm patterns, your singing, etc. Um, be sure to switch it up after about 15 or 20 minutes. You can move to a new position or come back to the normal seating. Why do we do this? It's because... Humans thrive when there's a balance of routine and novelty. We need these new experiences to help us frame and reframe and reinforce our routines, better appreciate what we're doing, why we're doing it. If you run a scatter rehearsal effectively, it helps your players appreciate seating arrangements as an aid to listening and not a fix. It's the same concept as when a wind player thinks, well, they put down the buttons for F sharp, so therefore they played an F sharp. String players and vocalists know that you have to listen to that pitch and put it right where it belongs. And the same is true for seating. You have to listen. You have to put the line where it goes. You have to match the articulations. So if you implement these strategies and you add order to the chaos of a scatter rehearsal, you really achieve a lot of musicianship and you get students out of their comfort zone in a comfortable way that is good for them and good for you as the conductor. To continue expanding on this topic, we will be interviewing an actively performing musician and band director. I'm joined here by Andrew Nichols, a middle school and high school band director in the Detroit, Michigan area, who is a woodwind doubler or multiple woodwinds specialist and plays weddings, corporate events, and musical pit orchestras as an active performer and has played for such acts as Hugh Jackman and The Who. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us. Yeah, not a problem. So could we go ahead and start off talking about your woodwind doubling? For the audience members who may not know, what constitutes a woodwind doubler? Um, I would say someone who is proficient at 
more than one wooden instrument. I don't mean just like alto saxophone and tenor saxophone. It's got to be a different kind. So clarinet and flute and saxophone, double reeds, oboe, bassoon. Um, I don't think it has to be every single one. If you're proficient at more than one type of woodwind, I would say that would constitute being a doubler. Gotcha. So what do you play then? Well, saxophone is my main instrument. I started on saxophone in sixth grade. Uh, and then in college, I started working on my doubles. I had a, I have a private teacher, had back then a private teacher who is somebody who played for all the shows at the Fox and the Fisher and all those, the pit work and artists that came through. So he kind of got me into that. So I started off on clarinet after the saxophone and then moved to flute. So I play all the saxophones, all the clarinets uh, and flute and piccolo, you know, all the flutes too. Just don't, you don't really get to play uh, things like alto flute or bass flute. You know, I've never played a bass flute mm-hmm. a whole lot, but in terms of all the clarinets and saxophones and then piccolo and flute, I would say is, is the main uh the main instruments that I play. Okay, interesting. So your career as a musician is not just performing. You are a teacher, a band director. Yes. Could you talk about how these have influenced each other, specifically how playing multiple instruments has shaped you as a director, maybe? I think being proficient on multiple instruments is is important in teaching uh, because it really helps you understand the instrument more you know for me as a woodwind player teaching brass that i struggle more with that because i have less knowledge and just understanding because of the lack of proficiency on the instrument of course i know how to play it and i can play it and make sounds on it but it's not the same as when you have proficiency in those instruments you have the knowledge of how to diagnose issues a lot better um you you also have the knowledge usually of how to actually repair those instruments better too. Um, I, I wouldn't say I'm a you know, full-on repairman, but I definitely do know a decent amount about working on my own instruments. And because of that, it helps you as a teacher be able to do that for your students as well. So you talk about your school. Could we just hear a little bit about where you're working, what the conditions are like, what kind of program you're running? Sure. Um, where I'm at is a pretty small community. I teach middle school and high school band. So I have sixth, seventh and eighth grade and then two high school bands. It's purely band and uh, no marching band where I'm at actually, which is I know pretty, pretty rare <laughs> for a high school to not have that. Um, personally, I didn't have any marching experience, so it actually works out well for me. Um, but uh, like I said, pretty small community kind of on the, the lower economic status. And for me with those students, I, I really, I feel like I work with them really well. It's a, it's a solid program. It it was not so much when I got there. Um, this is my eighth year teaching there. Um, it's been really nice seeing the growth out of those students. Um, especially because a lot of them struggle with, you know, a lot of aspects and things outside of school. Uh, sometimes coming to school is, is the best place for them to be. Um, they can't even always usually practice at home where I teach at because it's not allowed. And that's a, that's a struggle um, that I fight a lot. So to hear, you know, the students from where they were when I started there to where they're at now, where the program's at is, is really, really nice. And they really enjoy coming to class. And I, I think a lot of that has to do with just making a, a connection with the students. Without that, um, you're really not going to be able to draw the most out of the potential of each student as much as, you know, as much as you could without that 
relationship. Would you say that most of your students have school-owned instruments, and are those kind of do those tend to be in poor condition or? Um, actually, the a good amount of students do have their own instruments. Uh, they just don't take care of them very well. My district actually starts in fourth grade, which is very rare, also. Um, and they and those students start renting when they're in fourth grade. A lot of them, um, but then after they've put the money into the, having the instrument, they don't always have the money to maintain it. Um, so uh, I try to use some of my budget to help students that maybe can't afford to maintain their instrument, to maintain, to help them keep it in shape. And then there are a decent amount of school instruments as well. Students, usually it's more like the low brass, the larger instruments that students can't afford to own, where we kind of help out with that. Um, and I, I would say our instruments are actually in pretty decent shape. Um, I have a maintenance contract with the local music store that I work with. Um, and that that's because they, a lot of students do rent also, we're able to kind of have that contract and that helps out um, with budgeting. It's a lot cheaper to have that contract than it is to not. Um, so overall our in school owned instruments are pretty good. And I would say if, if I gave you kind of a ratio of, of students that own students that, that borrow from the school, it's probably about 60, 40. Gotcha. Gotcha. My high school was like that too. And, you know, we were, we were one of those bands where it's like, oh, we're just playing, you know, standard literature. It's yeah. So I totally yep. get that. For sure. You know, is it just, it's, it's concert band all year round then? Y yeah. Um, there's no jazz band or anything like that. I, I have a symphonic band and a concert band, you know, auditions gotcha. and, and non-audition and then sixth, seventh and eighth grade bands are all separate bands. Mm -hmm. Okay, cool. So, what, what oh, if I've asked, I've forgotten. How many students do you have in each program? Uh, in, in my high school, uh, combined between the both bands, I have about 80. And then each band in my middle school, usually, you know, it varies from year to year, but I would say it's usually between 20 and 30 students in the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade band for each band. So combined, in a, you're talking 150 ish kids. And then do you have problems with um, uneven instrumentation? Oh, yes. Um, that definitely is, a, is something that more so in the middle school that I struggle with just based on the smaller numbers. And then, of course, coming in from elementary school, they usually only do flute, clarinet, uh, saxophone, and trumpet. So I definitely have to switch some kids um, to, you know, bass clarinets and low brass instruments just to kind of help balance everything out. And that usually is the most difficult thing to do. Um, right now, even though we're virtual, my, my instrumentation throughout all of my groups is, is pretty, is pretty poor. So once we're back in person, hopefully I can kind of get that balanced out. Usually it's a struggle in rehearsal to try and get the upper winds to really back off and listen because of the limited low brass that we have. And, uh, it's, it's a, it's a challenge, but we've done pretty, pretty well the last few years. We, we do a band festival and that's been always been our comp, you know, biggest comment from when I started there and, and it's kind of definitely worked its way into where they, they get it. Now they listen back to the recordings and they realize, Oh, I can't just play as loud as I want. I've got to, got to back off a little bit. <laughs> so with the balance, can you fill the like French horn oboe bassoon chairs or do those tend to kind of get, you know, replaced by something else. So actually 
Uh, we do not have any French horn players currently. I have one in seventh grade, actually. Mm-hmm. One in seventh grade, but none of my high school. And we and my school actually does not own any double reeds either. And so I don't have any students renting double reeds. So I don't have any double reed players or French horn players. So a lot of times if there's an important French horn part, I write it for the alto saxophones um, because that's used typically the best depending on the range. Usually alto sax is what fits the best. Or... If there's an oboe line, I'll put it in the clarinet part. If there's if it's not in the cues, um, you know, there's there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I actually don't have very many trombone players either, so I end up having my baritones or my euphoniums that read bass clef play trombone parts. And then if I have some that read treble clef, I keep them on the baritone parts. Um, so there's always a lot of shifting where I teach to try and get that to balance out the best I can. So, budget wise. I think we're kind of steering into the small band like topic here. Yes. Budget wise, is there a lot of growth from year to year? What's kind of how do how do you get your funding for your program? So I do. I am given a little bit from each of my each building that I'm at, the high school, middle school, every year. Um, it's not a lot. It's usually between three and four thousand dollars per school, um, which doesn't go a very long way, especially after paying for repairs on school instruments, but. One thing that has been nice the last few years um, is our booster program is in charge of all of the uh, concessions for every sport throughout the high school. And so whatever profit we get from that, it it goes right into our our booster account. And so I have students and parents, very limited amount, but usually we get them to show up most of the time to work a football game or basketball games or anything that might be going on at the school. And that's where the majority of our funding comes from is running concessions for every sporting event. And then any other fundraisers or things like that? Yeah. Once in a while we'll we'll do a fundraiser, you know, for a while uh, early on when I started there, we were um, some of the parents were working at Detroit Tigers games and raising money that way. Um, And that actually worked out really well. That was a lot of money we we made doing that, but it was, uh, it was a super long day. It was a very tiring day. Um, You were there probably from, if it was an evening game, you were, I mean, you were there for 12 hours usually, you know, prepping and then cleaning up. So uh, we've done some things like that in the past and, you know, fruit or candy, you know, whatever comes up at the time or pizza, little Caesars kits. Typically we stick with just doing concessions at the high school and that, that usually gets us enough to get by for the year. It, it's not a, like we're saying, it's a smaller group, smaller program. It's not the biggest. So um, we don't need you know outrageous amounts of money like some schools do. So going back to the multi-instrumentalist kind of topic. Sure. Do you have anyone in your program that plays multiple instruments? Any students? Um, not really, actually. I have one student who um, she's a clarinet player, but she also plays, she hasn't hasn't played it in band yet, but she keeps bugging me to play trumpet. And I've heard her play trumpet and she has one because it used to be her brother's at home. And she actually sounds pretty good. So, and I I have a a handful of my students in the high school uh, in my, my audition to my symphonic band who actually take the lower band also kind of as a mentor to the younger students in that band. And so I, I, I told her that, she could start playing trumpet in that in the lower band if she wanted to and play clarinet in the upper band. So, but I don't have many, or she's probably the only one. And it's kind of funny because it's brass and woodwinds. It's not a a doubling in terms of like a woodwind double or a brass doubler. So unfortunately I don't have any of those kind of students in my program. 
Uh, any words of wisdom just for conductors, teachers, musicians? Um, yeah, I think, I think what I've noticed, cause I, this is my eighth year where I'm at, but I also taught three years somewhere else. So this is my what 11th, 12th year overall. And I, th- it's kind of something I stated earlier when we were talking, I think the most important thing, even above the music, because our job as directors is of course the music, but it's not going to be to the level that it could be or should be without getting to know your students. Each person is wired differently. And just like a good parent needs to recognize the wiring of their kid, I think teachers need to do the same thing with their students and recognize that and how they work and their personality to ensure that you are able to give them what's going to help them be successful. Lots of talk about conductors so far. We've had a middle school and high school band director, and we've had a collegiate band director, both for concert bands. Coming up here next, I have Dr. Gail Robertson, who, in addition to being the assistant professor of tuba and euphonium at the University of Central Arkansas and the current president of the National Tuba Association, she is the head of the jazz department and conducts the top jazz ensemble at this school. Amazing as that may sound, Gail's accomplishments do not stop there. She is, of course, a multi-instrumentalist and plays more than just the tuba and the euphonium. So you play plenty of instruments. Could you tell us about that? Uh, well, my earlier days began as a, uh, when we played recorder, of course, in the elementary school, and we had a piano in our house when I grew up. Did not like piano lessons, uh, but we did them for several years with the lady across the street. Uh, and then along came the saxophone. I played saxophone from the beginning band, uh, mostly on a regular basis through my master's degree uh, at Indiana University. I played in the jazz bands up there, the big bands. Uh, but somewhere down my freshman year, there was a opening in one. Actually, our jazz band that we had, a second jazz band, did not have enough brass players. And I was signed up for this band. And they said, you could get out of the class or learn another instrument. And my band director was a tuba. So I thought, well, I'll learn the tuba because they needed more tuba players. And that hit it off really quick. I ended up going from playing in our top band on the saxophone and, and to uh, playing that same band at my high school on the tuba, which was, there was only two freshmen in that band my freshman year. And, and so I quickly, I learned tuba and uh, had fun with that. And then someone graduated, a guy named Don Walters graduated some years later, and there was not a euphonium player for commencement. And you had a choice of playing, you know, on the tuba was bomb, 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 or ba, da, 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 da. so there you have it. That's what stole me away. <laughs> And then I went to euphonium and um, then I pursued that as my major instrument and uh, went to University of Central Florida and then got my foot in the door at Disney World and uh, played in the groups out there as a seasonal musician. That's how I actually paid for my first Wilson euphonium was uh, playing in the parks there. It was a really big deal. I think we got about maybe $7.50 an hour, which was like big bucks to us. You could eat in the cafeteria downstairs down in the basement at Disney. Uh, Down below, there's a whole other floor. And uh, it was like $1.85 for like this big slab of, you know, of nachos. I mean, it was like for us college students, we were like pigging out on the grilled ham and cheese every day and the French fries for $2. <laughs> so, but it, that's kind of how it got started for me. I went to uh, trombone, of course, sometime during my, my high school years, played in one of the, uh, there was an all-county orchestra that I played trombone in. 
And uh, so I've, I've continued. Now I'm primarily known as a euphoniumist. And I actually play tuba in our bra- faculty brass quintet. And so I do tuba as well in our brass quintet and things here and there. And trombone with different gigs here and there and all that. Uh, at Disney, I did play trombone in the parades. And on occasion, I was uh, a professional marching baritone player, uh, you know, in the parade units only. But our, our stand-up tuba quartet was called the Tuba Fours. Uh, that had two tubas and two euphoniums. So, uh, Could you explain how doubling playing multiple instruments has shaped you as a teacher and as a, you know, instrumentalist yourself? Well, I would say the saxophone's value was, it was the uh, door to uh, the jazz ensemble where uh, my friend Laura Leinberger would say, euphonium players normally can't swing from a rope. <laughs> so that that's where I think being in the jazz band and, and then because of the saxophone, that because of that instrument, the, the music you would find to hear of that was always a lot of jazz. So that's where I, I began listening to uh, a lot of Maynard Ferguson in high school. There was a, a man, a young man that his name was Tony Boyd, who was one of my sister's really good friends, who was a really great jazz center saxophone player. And, and we got rides with him to school and he was always playing Maynard Ferguson and, you know, Chuck Mangione and all those people. So that's where I started listening. I mean, I could tell you the songs on that Conquistador album. It was, I can tell you the color of it and everything. It was a record. And then Mr. Mellow was the track on there. We always skipped, couldn't stand that one. But, you know, there was Going to Fly Now. I mean, Super Moan Beats a Bad Man. So, I mean, that's where that saxophone's kind of got me in that door. The trombone has been helpful because that's sort of your gigging instrument for, you know, uh, brass quintets and Easter and stuff like that. Uh, you know, that also allowed me to be in the jazz ensemble. Uh, the euphonium is sort of, in many eyes of people, sort of the black sheep. It doesn't get to be in the orchestra unless it's a rare occasion. And you certainly aren't necessarily welcomed in the jazz ensemble. But those other instruments, um, you know, gave me opportunities in addition to what I do on euphonium. Um, I feel very lucky that I've um, that I play the other instruments. Tuba has been very helpful. I know had I not had a jazz background and had the tuba, I wouldn't have my job. I'm, I'm uh, currently in here at University of Central Arkansas because part of my job was uh, when I first hired was obviously and still is playing in our brass quintet. And then the other part of that job when I first got here was I, I ran the jazz ensemble and I eventually uh, took over. I was the head of the jazz area here and uh, ran the top band here. And uh, I wouldn't have done that without the saxophone. I'd be interested to hear more about your studio. Specifically, you know, balancing tuba and euphonium. I don't think there are any other studios that really have to do that. I guess the saxes maybe have, you know, the different Well, they have the different that... ones. Yeah, your oboe and bassoon sometimes might combine. At my school, they do here. I mean, uh, it is very common for tuba and euphonium to be combined. There are some people. I know Jamie Lipton does trombone and euphonium, and I believe John Mueller. There are some people that do that. It's very rare. There's only, I think, two jobs that I know of where they teach just euphonium. And it was Brian Bowman's old job where now David Childs is at North Texas and Demondre Thurman at Indiana. Those are the only jobs where you only do euphonium. Um, I, you know, I enjoy teaching both instruments. Uh, I know the repertoire very well on both of them. I'm not an orchestral tubist, so I don't pick up the tuba and demonstrate orchestral excerpts for them. And, and they know that we, uh, we, we study all that stuff and, you know, we, the, the use of recordings. And I mean, I, I, I just try to make sure if you're teaching something that's not your your forte or not let's say your forte, that's not your main instrument, you just do more homework in that area. So if you're a clarinet player and you've got a double on flute, you probably watch more flute videos than you do clarinet. So I've, I've just have filled the cracks by just making sure I'm always buying a repertoire for tuba and making sure that, uh, you know, that I'm 
very connected with tubas as much, if not more so than the euphonium people. So about your tuba and euphonium students, do you notice anything different about the way they kind of analyze music or, you know, just anything you might pick up on? I saw this question in your uh, in your questions you sent me, and I was really excited about that because no one's ever asked that before. And you know, you know when you, I mean, like as a private, you know, private teacher, you know, the applied teacher at a university. In many ways, we see them more one on one than anybody does. Once they leave their homes and they don't live at home anymore, I'm the person that can tell whether they've, you know, ironed their clothes or whether, you know, I mean, you you see one on one what's going on with these students, and I always tell them. You know, if you see me coming to school, my hair's all out of whack or something's weird, you better darn well ask me if I'm okay. Because I'm going to ask you if you're okay if I notice something different. You know, the tuba students in the most, for the most part, are, uh, are you know, are all worried about, you know, what instrument they own and, you know, the, you know, the switching, you know, the C tuba and trying to be, I don't want to say that everyone's this way, but, you know, you they're, they're um, it's a different kind of competition because they their parts are always the same. And in, in general, the euphonium and the tuba are very similar in that respect. You know, when you think back to the beginning band, there's never a first tuba and a second tuba part. There's just one. And I realized this years ago with um, some middle school students, I was fussing at these middle school kids over at Maitland Middle School in Orlando. I was like, y'all need to practice your music. And the one kid says to me, he says, he goes, well, you know why? Because the part's just one part. There's never any solos or anything. And I looked at the music. I'm like, oh, my God. Well, which is true. I remember that. But see, I started as a saxophone player, and we had first alto and second alto. So there was that incentive to get better. So I find that the tuba players are maybe a little more, they're not as competitive. The euphonium is a little more competitive because you might have more solos in the band stuff. There might be an occasional Divisi. A lot of euphonium players the repertoire, I think, lends itself to more heroism in many ways because of some Montilla and, you know, some of that stuff, the theme and variation pieces. Of course, they had that for Tubin, but I don't see you don't see that played as much like you don't see down in the deep cellar and Basil Bub and all those pieces that were sort of the early tuba euphonia or tuba repertoire for ver- theme and variation pieces being as played as we do in During on Charms and Carnival Venice and all those things on euphonium. So I think that they're more technically uh, savvy. Um, I don't want to say that the euphonium players are better sight readers because that's not always the case, but often it is. Uh, you know, the repertoire we play is often the same stuff. It's the Berdoni etudes just in the different octaves. Uh, the tuba is going to work on the low register of things. And so I often have to beat up my euphonium kids to make sure they, lurk, they do the low register too. But in general, they're the same kind of people. But I think the euphonium players have a different tone. When I have a euphonium player that switches and does F tuba or E flat tuba, they have a more warm sound. They have a different approach to that vibrato concept. So sometimes you have to tone that down so we don't sound like just giant euphoniums and we have sort of the, the uh, that the tuba players need to have. So um, I know you talk a lot about, I have euphonium players and I have tuba players. Is that typical for low brass people or are there a lot of generalists out there? Do you think? Um, well, there are a lot of people that want to, claim that they play both I don't mean to sound bad but they claim that they play both and they've just studied it or whatever it is and they've just learned the tuba in the past couple years and you don't learn something in a couple years so I mean in my studio I have a student that has taken secondary euphonium with me he's a performance major tubist who's about to graduate you know Sam Revis and he's doing euphonium with me I've had a couple trombonists study some euphonium, but no one really, I mean, I don't know if it's just a feather in their cap, but if you're going to do it, you've got to really do it. You can't just, 
learn a solo O2 or whatever like that. I mean, it, it's not the same. And then the same thing with tuba. I have my master's students. I'll often have them um, do uh, the tuba, like my euphonium master's students. I want them to play something on tuba on their recitals, but I won't let them do it if it's not great. And, uh, you know, but it, the only way to really get good at that is to really immerse yourself into it. You need to play in an ensemble. I mean, they need to play in like the second band here and play tuba or something. And I have had a student that did that, a guy who's now one of the military bands uh, that's a graduate from here that, you know, he was uh, wonderful. He did tuba and euphonium very, very well. And, um, you know, I, I, some of them embrace it, some of them don't. But I think that there are people that that are calling themselves, uh, you know, tuba and euphonium people, but they're really, really, only really, really great at one of them. And the other thing is secondary. Me, I, I, I can hang on the tuba and I can, you know, I, I think I'm a better tuba player than I like to give myself credit because I want it to be as good as euphonium, but it takes so much more wind for me. And I, that's the one thing I notice as I get older, that the capacity just is, you know, it's never been super awesome for me, I would say, to begin with. And it's just that more obvious whenever I play tuba. So that, that's one of my drawbacks on the tuba is that I don't have the capacity that uh, the, a, a real tubist would have that's been doing this. So I must ask, do you like your euphonium students to play both treble clef and bass clef? Absolutely. Or- yeah, I mean, they should do both. And my way around that sometimes is a little backdoor-ish. Uh, I mean, we didn't get to do it last semester because of COVID or this semester, but Every other year, at least, I like to have a, a, a all euphonium ensemble. I, I farm the tubist out to some brass quintets, you know, and then I take all the euphoniums. We have a big choir, and we've had as many as ten or twelve, you know, euphoniums in the in euphonium choir. And um, that music is always I can pick from trumpet repertoire, trumpet ensemble stuff. So I bought a bunch of trumpet ensemble stuff at the Midwest Brass Clinic, and you know, and band, and it works great as long as everybody reads trouble clef. So I passed out some of the easier ones and I said, here you go. And then, you know, a year or so later, I was uh, talking to one of my students and I'm like, you, you, are you still cool with treble clef? And I go, oh yeah, man, we had to learn it from the trumpet ensemble music. <laughs> so, you know, it worked out. But if someone's, if, if, they're, if you don't read bass clef and you only read treble clef, you're really missing out on a lot of rep. You can't play bassoon repertoire. You can't play trombone stuff. And I know a couple people that don't read bass clef and most of them are, uh, older people that they just never learned it. And, uh, and I can fuss at them all I want, but I don't think they're going to do it. You know, that's, uh, that's Paul is from Chicago and my friend Deb DePore, you know, she's, they're just not going to do it. And I imagine they're in their sixties. And then there are people that are only me bass clef. They ain't going to mess with that dang treble clef either. So, and it's most of the time it's older people that just don't want to learn all over again. But the young people, if you, it's like teaching a kid how to ride a bike, you put them on it or you put them in the pool and they swim and they're not afraid to drown because they don't know what drowning means. And if they fall, they don't fall as hard and they don't fall as far. You get someone who's older that doesn't swim, they're not going to get in that pool. And so I think if you can get people doing it when they're, you know, learning the other class when they're younger and they're not worried about not being cool, like, like a woodwind player who's never learned flute, that's a great saxophone player. They are not going to learn something and not sound great. When they're older, well, they're young, they don't care. They dive into it. So the younger you get them, I mean, back in the day, I would with my my middle school students and kids I taught in Orlando, um, I, I I still have a closet of trombones in, in my house here because my dad would find them at the flea market, and I would you know we'd fix them up and there'd be fifty bucks, seventy five bucks, whatever for a trombone for someone, and they would learn when they're younger. College students, I try to get some of them to do that right now. Mm, good luck. Thank <laughs> you. 
to wrap up our show here, our final interviewee is Ryan O'Connell, who is a composer, orchestrator, arranger, and writer in the LA area, who writes primarily for theater, film, TV, and other media or commercial musics. He's currently working on the early development of a few musicals as a composer and orchestrator, and in pre-COVID times served as a keyboard conductor for many musical theater productions. His insight as an arranger, orchestrator, and conductor will be invaluable in understanding the role of multiple instrumentalists as they function in the context of a live musical ensemble. So it seems like musical theater, um, like TV, film, media, that type of soundtracky slash theater (laughs) media seems to be what you typically write for. Yeah. Yeah, I'd with, say so. I'm I'm less involved with the concert world uh, gotcha. these days, but I'm yeah. more. Yes, it's more for um, scoring and and um, and for for live performances. Yes, I love that. So with that comes varied instrumentation. Yes, and of course, as we know, in theater pits and some soundtrack, you know, ensembles, we like to have a lot of doublers. Yes, and of course, that's our big focus this week Absolutely. or this month this bi-month. So could you kind of talk a little bit about your process for orchestrating? What, what determines like a, the instrumentation you will choose and who plays which parts just kind of go into that for us. Yeah. Well, um, I can start with the boring stuff and that's budget. You know, I, I, I usually work with uh, theatrical producers who come to me and they say, okay, we, we want an orchestration, but we only have uh, either we have budget for this many people or we only, uh, some, in fact, one of the shows I've worked on has been like, we only have space in the pit for this many people. So that's, that's a big factor in it. And it, it's, it's about, you know, the development process of the show. So sometimes um, certain shows, if we t- we're talking about the theater world, certain shows will go uh, along a development process where they do a couple out of town uh previews and and tryouts and where the where the um, authors can see what the work looks like and they can they can shape and change things um and the idea is that you would do you know one or two or more of those out of towns and then you would move to new york or or wherever the final destination may be and it it could be that along that process the orchestration gradually gets bigger and bigger as you go from uh, try out to try out and you get more producers involved and, and the development gets further along. So sometimes it'll start as, you know, a six or seven piece orchestration. And then eventually the idea is down the road, when you get to the final product, it would be 15, 16, 19, 20, whatever it would be. Um, but it all depends. Like I, I just did a show uh, not too long ago, Loch Ness, where we were in a, an amazing, amazing space up in upstate New York. Um, but the size limitations of the theater, they, they only had room for seven in the orchestra. So eventually we want to do a large 15, 16 piece orchestration. But, uh, for now, for that production, we were limited to seven players. So, um, my determining factor in, uh, deciding what, which instruments, uh, would be is, is how many colors could I get out of the least amount of people? And, you know, these days in Broadway orchestrations, you can, uh, 
use the synth, uh, use the keyboard hooks to your advantage. They can cover a wide variety and, and really boost the sound. But if you're talking about like stuff you want to hear and, and hear clearly and not sound fake, you want to think about what live players can cover the most amount of ground. So you're thinking about um, the amount of colors that you can ultimately have. And you're also thinking about the world of the show and what colors do I need for this show? This show is called Loch Ness. So what Celtic, you know, I, I can cover the Celtic flavors, but I can also cover the more intimate and emotional colors and, uh, and, and, and make it sound big and make it sound small and all that kind of thing. So you're really looking for versatility uh, depending on what the constraints are. So in a typical pit, I'm sure it varies plenty. I'm sure you have some pits where it's like four cents and a drum set and you have some where it's like a big band. Yes. Say you have a few wind players, few brass players, few percussions, string, you know, kind of a mm -hmm. typical old-ish musical yeah. style. What determines who will play which part? That's kind of a loaded question. But that's, yeah, that's a big question. What, what, do, you, do you have any specifics for that? Um, I'm just interested about, you know... We're trying to think of how we can bring this into the wind band world. Sure. Like I think maybe for like a director of a small high school band. Oh, sure. which instruments go well with what? Which parts are going to be like what type of yeah. part is my bassoon player going to be able to play really well? Or, yeah, you know. yeah, sure. Well, you know, I, I think it, it comes down to uh, if, if you're talking about like replace replacement instruments, you, you have to think about the range and general timbre of the instruments. So, you know bassoon and french horn sound uh can sound alike in the right context they have they have a, a kind of similar range the bassoon can go a little bit lower and and the horn is obviously louder and and uh and maybe a little warmer i would say um so, but ultimately they, there's a lot of overlap in that register so if you have a french horn player maybe they can pick up the bassoon book and, and things like that um of course there's transpositions and sheet music to think about but um you know that that's a good uh, that's a good place to start. A clarinet can cover a wide, wide range of, of different timbres and textures. Um, you could you could have them sub for some French horns. You could have them sub for some uh, even some flutes and some oboes and things like that. Uh, they, they have a very, very large register and a very wide uh, range as far as timbre goes. Um, I think that's the biggest thing is 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 finding the overlap in the range and seeing what's going to work. But um, uh, I, I find that like the middle instruments are the most versatile. So uh, yeah, your French horns, your your clarinets, your bassoons, you, you, you know the saxes, the woodwinds. I, the woodwinds are, are are so so versatile, and I mean that in a couple senses, both like you know range and timbre and texture and and, and style, but also how many instruments can most reed players play? You know, reed doublers are are one of my absolute go tos as far as expanding. Uh, as far as expanding the the sound of an orchestration and the and the variety of sounds that you can get with a very small amount of players, so one of the things that uh, I, I go back to this Loch Ness show that I did, one of the th one of the first players that was like an absolute must have was a wind doubler, and this wind doubler did um, this particular wind doubler did piccolo, flute, um, Irish penny whistle, Irish low whistle, uh, uh, clarinet and bass clarinet. I think we stopped there. <laughs> I think we stopped there. Uh, and, and that's absolutely, that was a vital part of, of doing what would eventually be a 16 piece orchestration with seven players, you know, that kind of thing. So something about the media world, 
you guys work with such a wide variety of styles, which yeah. I think is wonderful. Yes. How do you kind of get all those under your fingers? Um, it's a lot of listening and it's a lot of study, a score study. And, um, you know, I, I, <laughs> I have this thing where no matter what I'm listening to, I can't shut my brain off. I have, I'm, I'm always thinking about, Oh, that's a cool instrument or that's a cool texture. I wonder how they did that. You know, like I'm constantly thinking about the arranging and the instrumentation and what, what they're doing, uh, to make certain sounds. So a lot of it is, you know, for instance, I just did, um, I, I did a, a big band album, uh, a Christmas big band album for a singer. And, um, I had never, I've written for a Broadway style big band where you, you may be substituting some other instruments, but that was my first time really writing for like four plus four plus five, um, big band style, like authentic, true 100% big band style. So for me, I went online and I, uh, you know, I went on Apple music and I listened to a ton of great big band arrangers, especially, you know, this is specifically for a singer. So I was listening for a lot of, uh, big band arrangements for singers. So I listened to a lot of classic Sinatra and then I listened to a lot of Seth MacFarlane and Michael Buble and the modern style as well. Um, you know, Joel McNeely and, and Bruce Broughton and those guys who had, who had, who had done the arrangements for Seth, uh, and, um, uh, you know, and Gordon Goodwin and, and, and big band arrangers who I, who I love and respect. And I literally took note of things that they did that I liked that I thought were cool. Uh, and how they had the sections interact with each other, how they interacted with the singer. And then I just, you know, tried to emulate that style as much as, as much as I could. So a lot of it is just copying people who have come before you in a way that, you know, you, you spin it in your own hopper and make it your own. But, uh, you know, you, you take a lot of inspiration from, from people who, who are experts in that field and how they do their, how they do their thing. Um, so you know, I did, um, I did, I did a, a, a giant animated series that I, uh, I can only say so much about, but it was based on a couple films. And so I went back and listened to those films over and over and over again and tried to decipher, okay, well, what's the harmonic language? Okay. Sometimes they're in modes and sometimes they're in full, you know, Ionian tonicism. And, and I tried to take all those elements and, and apply them to certain things that I was doing. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, you know, I, I, I hate to be boring, but it's a lot of score study and it's a lot of listening and it's a lot of research. And you, you know, you talk to, I think, I think, um, uh, Ludwig Renson who, who did uh, Mandalorian, he was talking about, they went, he, he, he did black Panther. And so he spent a lot of time in Africa and going to, places of where the musical style was something that they wanted to emulate. And so he, you know, you do your research like any, like any giant research project where you're not familiar with the style, you, you absorb as much as you can. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to throw out there? Just any golden nuggets of wisdom? Um, you know, one of the, one of the things I, I find interesting is, um, you know, cause I float in both worlds. I float in the musical theater world, which, which, um, arguably, uh, is more, I would say, is more reliant on live players in smaller numbers. And then the film world tends to be larger orchestras and larger ensembles. And I think um, I enjoy both worlds for different things. I think uh, 
the film world, there's nothing like it in the sense that you have these giant orchestras and, and giant sounds that are, you know, that are, are meant to elicit a maximum emotional response. And I love, absolutely love orchestrating and writing for those giant ensembles. But I also, there's always been a special place in my heart for the musical theater world and the musical theater orchestrations. And I think part of it is I get to be a little bit more um, creative. I have to be more creative by necessity, just from the size of the ensemble and how many players I have in the different timbres that I uh, can create. So I have to be really careful with my, I have to be really um, creative with my pairings. Um, you had asked about uh, uh, about like how do you decide different pairings of instruments? So um, you know you have to, your your colors are more exposed, and therefore you have to be more creative about what kind of things you're using. Uh, so, for instance, if I want to have a French horn trio and I only have two French horns, well, then I use psychoacoustic effects where like I have two French horns, one plays the top line, one plays the bottom line, and in the middle I I insert like a clarinet or bassoon, and it sounds like a French horn trio, things like that. So. I re personally, I really enjoy um, the the creative aspect of of working in both mediums because it just flexes different sides of my brains. Um, and I think I would encourage anyone who's interested in this field, and this is my, this is kind of speaking to, from my own personal experience, but um, I would recommend listening to as many different styles as you can and analyzing as many different styles as you can and um, don't limit yourself to one specific style because some of the most interesting music, whether it be for film orchestra or for big band or for musical theater or for, uh, you know, any, any sort of thing incorporates a lot of different styles from a lot of different areas of music. And, uh, I would say just listen to as much as you possibly can and absorb as much as you possibly can. We'd like to thank you for supporting us as a viewer by listening to this episode of One More Time, a Wind Band podcast. If you enjoyed it, please take a moment to share it on the social media platform of your choice and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook, join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands, or find us on Twitter at Illinois Bands. We invite you to check out our website for more info at www.illinois.edu. This episode's executive producer was Dr. Anthony Messina, our staff sponsor. This episode was edited by Evan Matthews. Our two-minute rehearsal segment was produced by Emmett O'Brien. And our social media and marketing coordinator is Owen Henderson. None of this would be possible without the Illinois Band's faculty. Steven Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Elizabeth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. The Illinois Bands Program is a department of the School of Music at the University of Illinois in the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Andrew Nichols, Matthew Sadowski, Gail Robertson, Scott Schwartz, and Ryan O'Connell for their contributions to this episode. We hope you will join us for our next episode of One More Time, a Wind Band podcast.